KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, John Powers will discuss the summer's two big movies, Barbie and Oppie. First up, in today's political update, we have two big stories. Of course, Trump's indictment for conspiracy to overthrow the 2020 election and remain in power and the new New York Times poll showing a tight race. For comment, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. A trial of a former president, it's never happened before. A trial of a former president for trying to remain in power and overthrow the Constitution and democracy, totally unprecedented. All this during an election year in which the accused is running for re-election? Unimaginable before this. So we're in uncharted territory here, but we need this trial. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, unless you take the overthrow of our constitutional order as essentially normal or protected speech or whatever uh, defenses the uh, Trump attorneys will come up with, uh, we need this trial, assuming we want to essentially preserve the idea of uh, democracy and uh, the peaceful transfer of power, which is uh, related to uh, democratic control of, of a government. Well, it's clear that uh, Jack Smith is prepared to move quickly to a trial. The evidence is strong and clear, and most of it is pretty well known. Almost all the evidence cited in the indictment comes from Republicans, especially from his vice president, Mike Pence. Trump's best hope is to delay and uh, hope he wins the 2024 election and then can get the charges dismissed or pardon himself. But but the judge, an Obama appointee, seems unlikely to go for delays in the trial. And once the trial starts, it seems like Trump has virtually no chance of a not guilty verdict. Once the trial starts, his only hope really is for one juror who refused to convict despite all the evidence. So a hung jury is not impossible. No, uh, obviously it's not. Uh, and juries have been known to return bizarre verdicts or uh, shun the obvious by having one or two members refuse to acknowledge the obvious. That's certainly always a possibility in a trial, and it's it's a possibility in this trial. Now, that said, the trial we will be conducted in the District of Columbia with jurors who reside in the District of Columbia and the District of Columbia went for Biden over Trump in 2020 by a margin sort of like 94% to 4% and 2% straying to alternatives. So one of the motions that the Trump uh, lawyers will surely make is for change of venue. I think if they're realistic about change of venue, they, they really need to go to a, a place where uh, personalized authoritarianism is recognized, like Russia, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe Hungary. I mean, that's really the change of venue that would help them. And yet, and yet Republicans are sticking with Trump. There was this new New York Times poll uh, published on the beginning of the week, it was conducted before the latest charges were announced. It showed 
a tight race, each candidate with 43%. The New York Times poll is the top-rated poll in the country, according to Nate Silver's 538 website. And of course, you never should believe a single poll. The Real Clear Politics polling average shows Biden leading Trump by one point, which is statistically a tie. Uh, and really, there hasn't been much change in the polls for the last several months. They've all, all the polls have been very close. Of course, what matters is not the popular vote, but the vote in the swing states. And we don't know much about that right now. Uh, and these polls, I would also remind us, are polls of what the pollsters consider to be likely voters, something that requires a certain subjective element that's always hard to get it right. And of course, the Democrat strategy has always been to get more of the unlikely voters to the polls, and they're going to be trying to do that again in 2024. But a tie, I was shocked and dismayed to see that they're tied. What do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, the Republican uh, romance with uh, Donald Trump continues unabated. I should add that on uh, Wednesday, the day uh, after the night that Trump's indictment was uh, was made public, uh, the California Republican Party invited him to address its forthcoming convention, and he accepted. So, you know, they're in this cocoon that the rest of the world can only marvel at. One effect of the ongoing legal actions and the trials is to uh, really kind of compel the dialogue around the 2024 election to focus more on Trump than on Biden. And this will help Biden because Trump is significantly unpopular. And the more the subject of the day is the conduct of Donald Trump, the more I think that helps Joe Biden. You know, and then Biden has his own very real handicaps, which the polling you cite reflects. Age and a perception that the economy is uh, is not going well and it's his fault. I think those are the two main uh, issues that uh, the Biden candidacy raises. And we'll talk more about uh, Biden campaign in a minute. But first, I just want to take a step back from the news of the week and ask the question how we got here. How did America get to a place where a crook like Trump came to personify popular dissatisfaction to the point where one American in three says they don't really mind if we and our democracy, and nearly one in two says they're ready to vote for him again. At the prospect, Robert Kuttner takes up this question, and I want to ask you what you think about some of the answers he comes with. Number one explanation of how we got here is that the political system stopped serving the needs of ordinary working families. What's he talking about here? Well, I mean, he's talking about the erosion of sort of the the letter and the spirit of the New Deal, which yeah. did in fact empower working families in, a, in a, just a multiplicity of ways. Now, the Republicans never uh, really supported that, but the Democratic approach towards such matters began to change in the 1970s with a uh, sort of shift 
in some of the class base of the Democratic Party and with a, you know, a, a belief that markets could handle all kinds of things that lead to the general good that markets had previously been shown not to be able to handle. And so you had wage stagnation for decades. You had the offshoring of American industry. You had a kind of deliberate indifference manifested in the Carter and Clinton presidencies, and even to a degree in the Obama presidency, to uh, the well-being of millions and millions of American workers. So if that doesn't sour you on democracy, it's not clear what would. And the second thing Kuttner suggests to explain how we got here is the way big money has corrupted politics. I think we know a lot about this, how the end of controls on political campaign contributions and the permitting of dark money through PACs uh, has given uh, the, the billionaires and the multimillionaires way too much control over which candidates get selected. Uh, the third thing he points to is the backlash by white people against the progress we've made toward racial equality, which merged with resentment about the declining economic prospects of, well, especially older white working people. Yeah. And let's face it, these kind of racial issues, which long were kind of peculiar to the United States, as opposed to, say, European nations, which were in a large degree, certainly racially homogenous and often more homogenous even by other criteria. Europe is now having its, clearly its own right-wing populist backlashes, primarily over the issue of immigration from non-European people. So this is, this is something I regret to say of a constant in political behavior. In all such countries, economic elites generally have felt less threatened, uh, at least economically, by the influx of immigrants than uh, working class people. It then just sort of exacerbates all kinds of cultural issues and phobias that have long been present in the United States and that are relatively newly present in post-World War II Europe. So we have the kind of longer term economic decline of the working class, which is a result of a bipartisan process. Uh, we have the corruption of politics by, by big money and dark money. We have the backlash by white people against minority assertion uh, of rights. And it was in this world that Trump rises, let's notice, that he rose in 2016 as a response, first of all, to Obama. But there was something special about Trump's appeal in this world of uh, resentment and economic anxiety. Well, Trump did a couple of things that differentiated him from conventional republicanism. In particular, he pledged not to go after Social Security and Medicare which given that, you know, the base of the Republican Party increasingly is elderly and increasingly white, stood him in good stead with uh, a lot of voters who had rejected, let's say, the previous Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, who really personified the elite's tendency to support global trade, even if it hurt uh, American workers, 
and, uh, you know, a sense of, well, we have to hack away at Social Security and entitlement programs because they're fiscally unsustainable. Trump took a different course. Now, I mean, it's true that the tax bill he passed, which is the one significant legislative victory he had in his four years as president, basically was a huge giveaway to the rich. I mean, he's going to be there for that. But he had enough uh, political smarts to go for things that Republicans either, you know, had not previously supported, like going against uh, global trade, or had always supported but discreetly, like uh, inflaming white passions against minorities. Despite Trump's tying Biden right now in the leading polls, Trump is a badly wounded candidate. I'm quoting here Nate Cohn of the New York Times. He points out that only 41% of registered voters say they have a favorable view of him. A majority believe he committed serious federal crimes. A majority say his conduct after the last election threatened American democracy. So he is not a strong candidate. Only about a third of Republicans are passionate 100% uh, Trumpers, and and the Republicans are nowhere near half of the uh, electorate. On the other hand, Biden, as you have said, doesn't show a lot of strength uh, of his own. His favorability rating right now is only two points higher than Trump's. And despite an improving economy, his job approval rating is only at 39% in this latest poll. Nevertheless, his achievements are undeniable. Please remind us about the latest evidence of, let's call it America's industrial renaissance. Well, it's uh, an industrial renaissance on steroids. The amount of money going towards construction of factories, which really hadn't been going on in this country for decades, has risen over last year's level by 76%. Wow. And the uh, amount of business overall expenditures on things like construction and transportation equipment and software has risen over last year by 56%. So the three pieces of legislation that Biden navigated through a very evenly divided Congress uh, in 2021 and 2022, those being the CHIPS Act to uh, uh, bring the production of semiconductors back to the United States, the Infrastructure Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which gives all kinds of tax uh, credits to companies that embark on green manufacturing and such things here in the United States, have had a huge effect on the economy. And they've rolled in, those effects have rolled in really quickly. Um, You know, there's the sort of stereotypical critique of government that it is slow. This isn't slow. These were designed to take effect pretty quickly. And I think they're sort of exceeding even the expectations of the Biden people and congressional Democrats who wanted them fast to begin with. Now, it's kind of a general rule of American politics that economic prosperity helps the incumbent. Uh, Are these trends likely to continue through uh, November 2024? Well, we shall see. I mean, it's it's crucial that the level of inflation has dropped. That probably is the most critical issue behind Biden getting a higher rating on the economy, but also the fact that the economy uh, has an unemployment rate 
that's near record lows in the mid three percentiles, and that uh, labor force participation, which had long been lower than that of mid 20th century United States, now is coming back up. All of this suggests that by November of next year, more Americans will kind of understand what Biden has done in the economy. Now, that said, the easiest way to get them to understand that is if he had been successful passing the Build Back Better bill, which directly benefited individuals, not indirectly through things like lower unemployment uh, and more corporate investment in job-creating industries, but directly like student loan forgiveness, like paid sick leave, like supporting uh, child care uh, with government funding. Those would have had a greater effect, and those just could not get through the Senate, thanks to uh, uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema, particularly. The other thing that would help Biden a lot is if the unlikely voters became voters in 2024, especially young people who are the least likely to vote of all age groups. Found a article in the Washington Post reporting on the Harvard Youth Poll, one of the most respected, long-standing polls of uh, voters 18 to 29 years old. Marked shift in a progressive direction over the last five to 10 years. They are deeply concerned about climate change, about gun violence, about gay rights, about abortion rights, and about economic inequality. They fear for their economic future. They fear the changing climate of the planet. Uh, they're worried that the, the banning of abortion in red states is, is going to hurt them. What are the figures here? In, 19, in 2010, 54% of young voters believe that abortion rights should be legal in most or all cases. This year, it's 69%. And there's similar results for climate change, gun violence, gay and minority rights. The problem is young voters have always, as I said, have always been the least likely to vote of all age groups. And the challenge for Democrats is to get young voters to the polls. Yes, well, uh, the one issue that works clearly for the Democrats among young voters and women voters and most voters is the very stark difference in political uh, attitudes towards abortion. And this clearly has benefited the Democrats, even in the reddest of states. I will say one, one problem that the Democrats do have with young voters and other voters on the left is named Cornell West who for all intents and purposes could be a paid agent of the Trump campaign by siphoning off just enough votes to give the White House to Donald Trump. One, one last thing before uh, we let you go here. Trump, his whole career, has filed his own lawsuits in response to lawsuits bringing him to court. And uh, the news uh, last week was that a federal judge has thrown out Trump's $475 million defamation lawsuit against CNN. The network had said that Trump's claims of election fraud were the big lie, and Trump sued because he said the phrase the big lie associated him unfairly with Hitler. Just to quote uh, Trump's legal documents here, he said it was, quote, a deliberate effort by CNN to propagate an association between the plaintiff and one of the most repugnant figures in modern history. 
close quote. The judge in the case had actually been nominated by Trump in 2019. He declared that CNN's words were opinion, not fact, and therefore could not be the subject of a defamation claim. I googled Trump and Hitler, 17 million results. So apparently it's not just CNN that has had this idea. Is it your opinion that Trump is like Hitler? Well, I think the parallels are closer between Rupert Murdoch and Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> okay. Harold Meyerson, read him at the American Prospect. Harold, always a pleasure to speak with you. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Barbie movie, in its first 10 days, made $774 million worldwide. In the same period, Oppenheimer made $400 million worldwide. Together, that's more than a billion dollars in 10 days. For comment on this summer's two gigantic Hollywood hits, we turn to John Powers, he is critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has something like 5 million listeners. He's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then for Vogue. His work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Nation. John, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, you and I are not exactly the target audience for Barbie the doll or the movie, but we still have opinions and ideas. What did you think of the Barbie movie? I think it was probably about as good as a Barbie movie could be. <laughs> okay. you, know, you, know, you know, starting from the premise that you're having to make a film about a, com a consumer product who, whose owners or controllers will in some way stop you from doing certain things if you make something too wildly subversive. I thought, you know, it was filled with good jokes. It was high-spirited. I, You know, it was bright pink, and I liked that. It wasn't stupid. In all of those ways, I, I had a good time. I mean, I would just add that it's so much better than so many of other the other movies that are coming out that not, once we start attacking it, or at least criticizing it, <laughs> we, we should at least acknowledge the fact that this is a film about a doll that the nation podcast can talk about and not feel stupid in talking about it. <laughs> well, I thought the movie was loads of fun. I agree that it was hilarious. It was smart. It was, let's also add, the most explicit feminist movie ever made, I think. I have one basic problem with this movie. It ignores what made Barbie the doll special. Barbie has breasts. Barbie has blonde hair. Barbie is tall and thin. And feminists for decades have argued that Barbie encourages girls to hate their bodies. And scientific research says it does have that effect on girls. But the movie winks at all that by having our protagonist describe herself as stereotypical Barbie. And she learns a lot from weird Barbie, Kate McKinnon, who is wonderful and a fount of energy and good ideas in this movie. Stereotypical Barbie says she wants to, in her words, be real. And that's kind of the drama of this 
movie. But the point of being real, first of all, would be for Barbie not to look like stereotypical Barbie, a blonde with big breasts. And that's the big thing that's missing here. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, I mean, you, you have to start with stereotypical Barbie. And there were other Barbies. So, I mean, I remember when, when we were young, there was only one Barbie. And, you know, and, and that was, it was quickly pointed out that in addition to body shaming women who didn't have the Barbie body, you know, it was also racist because they're not, not everybody is, is white. You know, and over the years, they did try to expand the Barbie franchise. So I'm, I'm more forgiving about that than maybe you all, all things considered. I mean, if one was were to attack the politics of it, um, and, and which we love to do here at the Nation Yes, Podcast, we do. <laughs> okay. Is that I think one could point out that it does have a very binary sense of gender. That's the thing that's unmodern about it, is there are Barbies and there are Kens. And then the Michael Sarah character, who could have somehow been something different to that, or the Kate McKinnon character, who could have somehow been something that isn't that. And I wonder two things about that. One is whether that if you're trying to do a mass hit, you wanted to go there. Or two, whether Mattel thought that's too much. We, you know, suddenly we, we don't want trans Barbie. We don't, we don't want, we don't want a Barbie who's a they. We don't want a Ken who's a they. You know, we want him and her, but it's a very him and her movie with kind of faintly retro visions of what female and male are. You're absolutely right. This is not a gender fluid uh, movie. But, no, it's but the people who made Barbie did have a lot of fun with feminist theory, like when Barbie tells Gloria, her articulate friend in the real world, quote, by giving voice to the cognitive dissonance required to be a woman under the patriarchy, you've robbed it of its power, close quote. That's a joke for the gender studies grad students in the audience. No, it is. And of course, because as we know, it's not true. It's even a better <laughs> joke. Um, you know, and because one of the things that's striking is if you are of a certain age, is that the speech that, that she gives, that the LA Times thought worthy of reprinting in whole, <laughs> such a speech was, I thought, oh, I, I remember hearing essentially that speech from women in 1974. Yeah. Far from being a breakthrough feminist idea, this is a 50-year-old speech <laughs> that still Good. has power and therefore proves the point that by saying it, it doesn't topple the patriarchy because the patriarchy is still there. Probably one of the things I liked least in the film is, is the way that every now and then it has to like pause to tell you what to think. The great French filmmaker Robert Bresson, in his book of aphorisms, one of them was, hide your ideas, but not so that nobody can find them. And I think that probably when you're making a film like this, if you didn't have those speeches, huge parts of the audience may not actually get it. Well, we salute you for being the only person to bring up Bresson in the context of the Barbie movie. It, you're, you're blowing my mind here. <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> the movie does, does wink at all of this throughout, though. There's that other great moment where Gloria, the real-world depressed mother and housewife who works at Mattel, has been secretly drawing rogue Barbie models at, at her desk crippling shame Barbie and irrepressible thoughts of death Barbie. Yes. So th this is a lot of fun the movie is having. We're not talking here about astronaut Barbie or Dr. Barbie. No, no, we're not. You know, there are lots of really good jokes. 
you know, just some of the jokes about men and like wanting to watch the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, <laughs> you know, clearly is, you know, is very much of this moment. And, and, and I think what's interesting is the way the jokes expand out to be of different kinds. So you have the kind of silly, almost kids could like jokes of the cars and the pink and it toppling over. And then you have the joke you mentioned earlier, the feminist theory joke and, and crippling the patriarchy with the speech. And you have a lot of different levels of the thing going on where you're trying to juggle it. I think the, the true feminist meaning of this film in the grand scheme is that it's the most successful movie ever made by a woman. And that Greta Gerwig has gone from herself being Barbie, because it's kind of an autobiographical film, being the kind of ditzy blonde in lots of movies, to being the person who can make the thing that's going to make a billion dollars, and on something that people weren't sure you could make a billion dollars with, do it and have it be a film that's critically admired. The real feminist thing is that she did that much more than I think anything in the film. And as Michelle Goldberg argued in her column in the New York Times, the unfortunate thing is the lesson the Hollywood studios have taken from this. Not that they should make more films feminist films for girls and women, but that they should make more films about toys, more product films. Oh, oh, yes. You know, the Supreme Court got in early when, you know, when it declared that corporations are people. <laughs> yes. and, and, and we've now, we're now to the point where products are characters. It is very much part of the way capitalism does start controlling levels of thinking and art that you couldn't even quite be, you would never have guessed that you should make movies about products. You know, there was the sneaker movie earlier this year, you know, a very enjoyable movie. What's interesting is that some of these movies about products are being made by some of the smartest people around and that they are quite entertaining and are more adult than a lot of the movies that are being made. So that you think that you, you go see a movie about Barbie and it's actually more intelligent and more thoughtful and more, more of a commentary on the world than probably 95% of the movies that have come out. So Barbie gives us a lot to think about, a lot to argue with, lots of great singing and dancing, lots of fun. What more could you want from a movie? Well, you might want to see a movie like Oppenheimer, a different kind of movie. I thought it was a terrific movie, three hours of absorbing drama, compelling characters, sophisticated storytelling about real historical problems. What did you think? I, I thought it was going to be terrible going in, partly because I had not admired his film Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk, which I thought kind of made a hash of a historical thing. And I thought that it would be that I wasn't sure what he could do with this. Initially, at the beginning, I wasn't sure. There's a little hint of a beautiful mind to it with, you know, when somebody's saying something and the sparks are flying before him. But having said all of that, it is an intelligent movie. It was subtle in ways I didn't expect it to be. You know, for us unrepentant old lefties, it's one of the rare Hollywood movies that spends quite so much time showing how, even in the midst of World War II, the obsession with communism and finding subversives was, was running through stuff when people were being heroic and giving their entire lives to defending the United States. The thought out of lots of people in Washington is that they may be communists, we have to stop them. I'm not sure I've seen any Hollywood movie that establishes 
how completely that that operation was going on and the way people were thinking. So that in itself was, was quite interesting. You know, Oppenheimer's own politics were, you know, were left kind of vague. I think part of it, I think Christopher Nolan isn't really interested in them. And he was kind of vague, I think, in his political thinking anyway. He wasn't like his brother, Frank, who was more committed. And in fact, if you've ever seen Frank talk, you think, oh, the movie's a little unfair to Frank Oppenheimer, who was a brilliant physicist. He's made a little goofy in the film, but in fact, in, re in real life, he's a beloved figure, you know, who knew lots about physics. I wonder what you thought about uh, Christopher Nolan's decision not to show any documentary images of the effects of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is the big criticism that, that lots of people have raised because the theme of the movie is the horror of the bomb and how it looms large in Oppenheimer's own thinking about his own life. Manola Dargis in the New York Times wrote, the horror of the bombings and the magnitude of the suffering they caused suffuse the film despite the fact that we don't see any documentary footage. Do you think that that is adequate? I didn't feel that, that I needed to see it. I, th I thought that, that a lot of that footage is some of the most famous footage of the last hundred years. You could imagine if you showed it, people saying you're exploiting the death and murder of those people to make a Hollywood movie about, about a famous American. I didn't think it was any less, any less powerful. There's a bad scene in the film, I think, where Oppenheimer's talking and he's seeing the people turn into the Hiroshima victims. I, I just didn't like that scene. Also, he didn't see it happen. He saw the one bomb. He, he was in the United States. He wasn't down there with a newsreel camera. He felt it in the moment that it happened without seeing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, 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 for, and for most people, that's what it was. And Oppenheimer wasn't as good in fighting against it as he should have been, probably. And the film doesn't let him off the hook. We do see in lots of ways, what's interesting is how he is a vacillating guy who clearly at some level wants to do the thing, partly because you're doing it. And, you know, he is a prince-like. His antagonist in, in the film comes Straw, played by Robert Downey Jr., very, very well by Robert Downey Jr., who, who is, becomes his enemy. There are two American Jews, okay, who meet... And Oppenheimer is the princeling who comes from the family that has Picassos and Van Goghs on the wall. And Straw is selling shoes at the same point. And Oppenheimer is more brilliant than he is. And so you, ha you have their hatred going together. But the princeling Oppenheimer, Straw says of him something almost that the wife says, Kitty, which is essentially you wanted to do it and be the hero. And you want to be the hero of stopping it once you did it. You want credit on both sides to be both the creator of the bomb and the greatest advocate against the bomb. And I think that you can imagine that being part of him his entire life being the special chosen one. And, and you see that in the film. The film, the film doesn't say that, but it shows it. And that's one of the great things about this film is what a complex figure they portray yeah. without making it easy to understand. And yet I don't think Christopher Nolan understands him. You know, one of the interesting things for me about the structure of the film, and it's something I like maybe a little less, is the structure makes it interesting where you start with the hearings where his, you know, where his security clearance is at stake. So you know from the beginning it's there. The only problem with doing it out of sequence is it creates a sense of inevitability where once you know that he's going to get in trouble later, 
everything he says and does, you start thinking, is this going to be the thing that's going to do it? And also one too many people tell him, you know, you're going to get yourself in real trouble if you don't, if you don't do this. <laughs> There's somehow in which it's, it's like the chronicle of a, a chronicle of, of a fall foretold because from the built into his beginning is already the ending. And that's slightly reductive because it could, things could have gone in a different way. But if you told the story straightforwardly, everyone would say, oh, it's just another crummy old biopic. You know, <laughs> and, and, it would, and it would seem less, it would seem less interesting. And this allows him to, Nolan, to cut corners in not having to show you everything, including lots of boring stuff. So that, you know, as, so as a narrative feat, I think it's actually quite successful. It just, it does, it does tinge the whole sense with, oh yes, this had to happen. Well, speaking as a historian, I was very interested in how they convey the debate among the scientists about whether to drop the bomb on a civilian target. A very important historical question that Christopher Nolan wants to make part of this film. Yes. One historical element is missing. They talk a little bit about the importance of Russia in the American decision to drop the bomb, but there's a lot more that they leave out. The movie does say pretty strongly that the motivation of our leaders was to save American lives by by forcing Japan to surrender without an invasion that would have cost maybe thousands of American lives. That's what most people think. But they do have Oppenheimer say one time late in the film that Japan was on the verge of surrender anyway. And they do make it clear that the Trinity test was scheduled to come before the Potsdam conference. The Potsdam came after the German surrender, it was a meeting between Truman and Stalin to decide on the structure of the post-war world. And it was very important that Stalin understand that America had the bomb. Uh, but there's a lot more historical evidence that a major reason for dropping it was not only to let Russia know that we had the bomb, but that we would use it against our enemies, not just to end World War II, but we could use it during the Cold War too. And we did not want Russia to enter the war against Japan, which they did two days after the Hiroshima bombing. Uh, Russia invaded the uh, peripheral islands of Japan. That threatened to make Russia part of the post-war settlement with Japan, which we really wanted to prevent. We wanted Japan to surrender unconditionally to the United States and not to Russia and the United States. That's not in the movie. It's kind of a complicated story, but there's a lot of other complicated parts of this debate that they do tell. And I, I think that should have been in the movie. It should be. I understand why it isn't, because it's, it's taking you two minutes to explain it. And equally, there was something in the, the, the film called The Day After Trinity, which is now showing on television, which is a very good film. Frank Oppenheimer, I, I believe, is the one who says a very true thing. If it ever came out that you'd, that you'd had these weapons and invaded Japan rather than using them as a political thing, every soldier who died going in would be used against you in election. And you know that Harry Truman, not being, I think, a, gra a grand thinker, would be thinking that's bad for me politically. And so like at that simple level, leaving aside grand strategic things, there's the small thing, which is, I don't want anybody saying I didn't kill everybody I could, which means to say that it's a hugely overdetermined decision. And one that was taken, Oppenheimer's opinion, you know, and none of the scientists' opinion mattered. 
the military people and Truman had already made the decision. What's touching in a way was somehow Oppenheimer's got the job to run things because he supposedly he can like he's the one who can hold things together. He's got the biggest intellect. And what he can't see is that they're all functionaries. They've taken what they want from the scientists. And what they don't want really is the scientists' opinions. Uh, one last thing. Oppenheimer cost $100 million to make. They spent another $100 million promoting them. That's what they spend making and promoting superhero movies. But this one is not the Avengers. It's not Spider-Man. This one is a really serious, good movie. And it made $400 million in its first 10 days. So I was saying to a friend, this is the first time maybe in maybe a decade, maybe more, that on the same day there were two films that came out that reminded me maybe of the glorious days of maybe 1970s film, where on a weekend you could actually have two films that came out and you thought, oh, these are actually good and interesting. Even if you didn't like them, you thought these are real films trying to do something. I would just say parenthetics as we're linking it to Barbie, that just as I was saying that Barbie is about, is about Greta Gerwig partly, it's autobiographical. You know, I think Oppenheimer is, a, Christopher Nolan clearly has some identification with Oppenheimer. He's the guy who makes blockbusters. He's the person who makes hit after hit. And I'm betting that like Oppenheimer, having made hit after hit, when he goes into the studio people, they all still act like they're the smart ones and really know what's going on and that he's their tool. Barbie and Oppie, two terrific movies. Our conclusion, hooray for Hollywood. John Powers is critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Thank you, John. It's great to have you on the show. I love being here. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh, 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 o